0: Well, one of the books I read in, in preparation for this is uh, by A.W. Pink. Uh, A.W. Pink is no longer with us, and he wrote a book on sanctification, and he's, um, he called it The Doctrine of Sanct- Sanctification. And I want to read just an opening paragraph as he prefaces his book. And, you know, last week, we talked about the two natures. Um, we each have a, a dual identity. We've got our old nature uh, we've got a new nature, uh, we have the sin nature that's still resident within us and that pops its ugly head up more often than we'd like to admit, and then we've got this new nature provided for us by the indwelling Holy Spirit, and they're at war, as, as Paul told us, they're at war, they fight, they, one is always trying to come to the surface, and sanctification is all about how do we live out our Christ-likeness, our new identity in Christ. So here's how he prefaces his book. He says, "...even a superficial examination of the Scriptures will reveal that holiness or sanctification is the opposite of sin. Yet the realization of this at once conducts us into the realm of mystery. For how can persons be sinful and holy at one and the same time? It is this difficulty which so deeply exercises the true saints. They perceive in themselves so much carnality, filth, and vileness that they find it almost impossible to believe that they are holy. Nor is the difficulty solved here as it was in justification by saying, though we are are completely unholy in ourselves, we are holy in Christ. In other words, justification teaches that while I have this sin nature, I am justified, made right with God because of the righteousness of Christ. That when I accept Christ as my Savior, I inherit, I am imputed, His righteousness and so God sees me as holy because of the holiness of Christ that's justification. But he goes on and says, we must not here anticipate the ground, which we hope to cover in this book, except to say, the word of God clearly teaches that those who have been sanctified by God are holy in themselves. The Lord graciously prepare our hearts for what is to follow. And I think that's the the hardest thing for you and I as believers to really believe. It's easier to believe that Jesus Christ took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again, sits on the right hand of God the Father, and one day is coming back. It's easier to believe that than to believe that I am truly holy. Because I know myself, and you know yourself. And yet, what sanctification teaches us, what justification teaches us, is that you are indeed holy, set apart by God. You belong to him, you are his child, and you are indeed holy. Does that mean you're holy completely through and through, and that everything you do is holy? No. But you have the capacity for holiness, and you can become increasingly more holy by the way you act, the things you do, the things you think and say. And that's what sanctification is all about. So as we dig further into this issue of sanctification, um, the question that comes to my mind is, why is it even necessary? Why must we go through this process of sanctification if, indeed, when I am saved, I am made righteous and holy in God's eyes? Why do I need to go through this process? And one of the questions I've always asked, and if you've attended Band of Brothers for very long, you've heard me ask this before, why in the world did he not take me when he saved me? If heaven is better than this, and I believe it is, why did he leave me here and not take me to be where he is? Remember, he told the disciples, one day I'm going to come back and you'll go to be with me. Why didn't he just take them? This is where sanctification comes in. We have been left here. It's not some kind of a sick joke on God's part. It's the process he wants to bring us through, and it's a preparatory process for glory. We're going through this period where we are living in this world. We're still of this world, but we are actually aliens in this world now. We don't belong here, but we are here. And the question is, why are we here? What happened? How did we end up with these two natures? And why do we have to have two natures? Why can't God just get rid of the old nature? Well, if God got rid of the old nature, we'd basically be in heaven, but we're here. And so we're having this battle between two natures because it's ordained by God, it's his plan. We can question it, we can say we don't like it, but it's the way he has ordained it for you and for me. So what I wanna do is I wanna go back literally to the beginning and I wanna look at the book of Genesis. You're very familiar with this story. Most of you, if not all of you in this room, probably believe this story. There may be a handful in the room who don't believe this story, who think it's mythological. It's, it's uh, not true. God didn't really create the world in seven days. I believe he did. I don't believe those days were a billion years each. I believe it's a literal 24-hour day. And the reason I believe that is because I believe God can do anything. I believe my God, if he wants to create the world in a second, he can create the world in a second. I know from the book of Revelation, he's going to destroy the world in just a nanosecond. And he's going to recreate it. So he can do whatever he wants. But here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him again, we're very familiar with this passage, but here's the question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Why is that significant? There's a lot of debate about this, and, and a, a, lot, a lot of us as believers have been taught, and we believe that what this means is that I have capacities like God has. I can create. I can make stuff like God can make stuff. I have reasoning capabilities, I have a will, I have a soul, I have, I have these things that make me like God. And that's not untrue, but I don't think that's what this really has to do with. There's far more here going on than I'm creative. Because here's the deal. Lost people are creative. There are lost people out there far more creative than I am. And if it's just a matter of that I can solve problems and I can be ingenious, well, monkeys can do the same thing. Monkeys can solve problems. Monkeys can figure out how to get fruit out of a tree. They, you, know, you may say, well, that's instinctive. Well, how much of what I do is instinctive? Um, so what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Adam and Eve were the only beings created by God that are said to bear his image. No other thing God created bears his image. Only Adam and Eve, and by extension, you and I. Well, again, what's it mean to bear his image? How do we bear his image? You know, there's not a guy in this room that I think looks like God. I hope you don't look like God. I hope when I get to heaven, I don't spend an eternity looking at you and you're God or your face looks like God. You you don't look like God. I don't even know what God looks like. No one knows what God looks like. So I don't think we bear his image like my kids bear my image. I evidently have very strong genes because out of six kids, five look just like me, including three daughters. Sucks to be them. Um, My wife is gorgeous, and one of my daughters was lucky enough to look like her. They bear my image. They, They look like me. That's not what this means. I don't look like God. You don't look like God. I don't even know what God looks like. So it can't mean that you literally look like God. So again, let's go back to the beginning, to Genesis. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. What do we know he created? Well, he goes on and says, God said, let there be light. And he says, it's good. Now I want you to notice this because every time he makes something, he says, it's good. He makes the light, it's good. He makes the earth and the waters, the seas. He says, it's good. He goes on, he makes the vegetation, the plants. And he says, it's good. He makes the heavens, the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, and he says, it's good. Then he creates the sea creatures, he makes the birds, and he says, again, it's good. Now, when God says something is good, what does he mean? He means it's good, like really, really good. Not like, see, I like to work with wood. I I fancy myself a woodworker. Now, you know, Max Harmon is a woodworker, If Max Harmon came over to my wood shop and saw something I made that I deemed good, he'd go, that's crap. (laughs) You know, I've seen what he can do. He knows how to work with wood. I dabble in it. When I say it's good, it's okay. When God says something is good, what is God saying? This is perfect. This is whole. This is complete. This is without flaw. Why? Because he made it. He made it perfect. And over and over again, we hear him saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. He makes the beasts, all the things that creep along the ground, and he says, it's good. It's whole, it's perfect, it's righteous, it's, it's the way I intended it to be. And then he makes man in his own image, and he says, he looks at everything that he's made, the whole list, including man, and he says, now it's very good. Why is that significant? Because I think what it's telling you and I is that you and I, Adam and Eve, and by extension, you and I, are the apex of all creation. We were the last things he made. And when he made man and woman, he said, now it's very good. Now it's complete. Now it's whole. Good, 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 very good. And so we sit at the apex of the creative order. God made man last because man was the final part of the equation. And we were handmade by God. And this this is huge to me. And it's something we don't really think about, that God made us. He formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In other words, he didn't just speak and man appeared. He formed him. He fashioned him. That's when you read passages about the potter and the clay, they carry real weight and significance because he literally formed man out of the dirt of the earth. And then he breathed life into him, and he became a living creature. And then God chose to make woman from man. And we know from chapter 2, he takes the woman out from the man. He takes a rib, and he fashions a woman. How did, how did he do that? I don't have a clue. Why did he do it? I still don't really have a clue. Now, my dad, when, when I was a kid growing up, my dad was my pastor, and he, I heard him do a ton of weddings. And my dad did an entire wedding ceremony based on this passage. And, and as a kid, I thought most of it's conjecture. You know, he just, my dad's making stuff up. But here's what he would say. He said, well, he took the, the woman from the man's rib because she became part of him. She became one with him. She wasn't separate from him, but she actually came from him. And he, he came, she came from out from under his arm because the man's job is to protect and love and care for his wife. And he had like eight of these like applications for marriage based on the creation of Eve. It's significant that God made man and woman himself. We don't know how. We don't know what it looks like. But we're the apex of the creative order and we're handmade by God with life breathed into us by God. That's that's important. It's significant. And it's partly going to help us understand what it means to be made in his image. No other creature, no eagle, no whale, no cow, no donkey, no monkey, no whatever... Bears the image of God. Now, all creation, according to Romans chapter 2, points people to God because it says no man is without excuse because the creative order points to a creator. But that doesn't mean the same thing as bearing the image of God. We, as human beings, bear the image of God. And no other creature received the same mandate that Adam and Eve did. They got an extended mandate. God told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, he did command that to every one of the creatures. And they did it instinctively. Animals are prone to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's just kind of what they do. But he goes on with man, he says, you're to subdue it and you're to have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. You are the apex. You are to have dominion. You are to rule. You are significant and special in the eyes of God. Now, again, we're talking Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We haven't gotten yet to Genesis 3 where things go south really quickly, right? So this is everything's good, everything's very good, man and woman, made by God, and they are made holy and righteous, completely holy and righteous, because God created them. You see, he made everything, everything we see, the full moon that's out there right now, he made it. The universe, he made it. You, he made everything, and then he puts everything. Man in charge of it. That is amazing to me. Now, again, I make things. I I like to create with my hands. I like to make uh, things out of wood. But even I'm smart enough not to spend hour after hour after hour making things out of wood and hand it to a two year old and say, Take care of this for me. But what does he do? He takes his creation that is very good and he hands it to this man and this woman and he says, You're in charge of it. You have dominion over it. And this word dominion is pretty significant in the Hebrew because it literally means to rule or to reign. Rule over this, all that I made, rule over it. Care for it, have dominion over it. And there's a sense in which you and I as believers should care about the world in which we live. We should care about ecology. We should care about how we take care of the resources that we are told to steward. We should, but the problem is we take this idea of dominion a little bit too far, I think, and we get too hung up on we're the apex of the creative order. We can do whatever we want to with this earth. We can abuse it, use it, misuse it. But listen to what it says in Psalm 8, 5, and 6. You have, God has made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. This is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. See, this is the way it began. This is what it means for you and I to be made in the image of God. We are handcrafted by God and we are to have dominion. But don't let dominion go to your head. Don't let this idea of that, you know, you, you are the apex of creative order and you're greater than the animals and you can do with this creation, whatever you want, because you rule and reign over it by God's mandate. Don't let that go to your head because I think there's far more to this than just you ruling and reigning. It's more about your representation you represent God. You are his representative. Adam and Eve were to represent God and they were given the job of taking care of everything that he made. That's a high standard. That's a high order. Well, how did they do? Well, you know how the story goes, right? They're made in his image, but they don't really carry it off. It says, let man be made in our image after our likeness. So this is one of the passages in Genesis that is used to prove the Trinity because it's in the plural. It's talking about God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, all involved in the creative process. But it says, let's make them in our image after our likeness. And that word image is really important for us to grasp. It's sometimes referred to as likeness. A semblance, you know, my kids look like me. Um, your kids may look like you. My grandkids look like me, which is kind of scary. You know, it, it's that's what this word can mean. But there's another aspect of this word that we miss. It can, it can also be translated shadow. God is telling us that man, Adam and Eve, were to be the shadow of him. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we all know what a shadow is, right? You cast a shadow. Some of us cast bigger shadows than others, but we all cast a shadow. If I go out in the sunlight, I cast a shadow. And the shadow never appears without what? Me. You don't have a shadow without the thing that causes the shadow. And so when it talks about man being a shadow, it's saying that man exists because God exists. And man is nothing more than a reflection of the one who made him. And the animals don't reflect the shadow of God like we do. That's a special privilege given to you and I as human beings. It's the same word used in Psalm 39.6. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, as a phantom. We are here and we're only here because God deems us to be here. We represent him. And the world should look at us, and when they look at us, what should they notice? The God who made us. We should reflect Him. And one of the things that's kind of jumped out at me in studying this thing about bearing His image is that what I have learned over the years, and what I have been taught over the years, and what you hear from most people, both atheists, agnostics, and Christians, is that everybody who walks this planet bears the image of God. Now, is that true? To a certain degree, maybe so. But the more I study this topic, the more I conclude that no, they don't. Even atheists, even um, those who don't believe in God will use a term like, well, we need to take care of those people because they bear the image of God. But do they? My contention is no one on this planet who is outside of Christ bears the image of God. It's impossible. They can't. Why? Because they're separated from God. They are no longer the shadow of God because of the presence of sin, because of their distance from God, as we'll see in just a second. So you and I, though, do bear his shadow because of what Jesus Christ has done, and that's what all this has to do with the topic of sanctification. It's a image, it's an image of that which the, sh- the shadow creates, but you got to have the original, right? You can't have a shadow without the original. You can't have the shadow without God. If God is not there, there is no shadow. If God is not present, there is no shadow. That's why I don't believe people walking this planet who do good things, who are nice people, moral people, love their kids, love their wives, give to charities, do wonderful things, create... They don't bear the image of God anymore because they are separated from God. They're at enmity with God. That's why, again, sanctification is so important. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, this word salem, which is about image, has to do with idols. When somebody made an idol, they were making an image, a shadow of a God they can't see. The only problem is they were making an image of something that doesn't exist, that God doesn't exist. So they make this thing and actually becomes the God. The idol becomes the God. That's why God told the Israelites, when you go into the land of Canaan and you possess it, I want you to get rid of every altar and every idol, and I want you to destroy them. Why? Because what people were really worshiping was the image. What do people worship most in our world today? Man. They worship man. See, man is no longer the shadow of God, the image of God. Man has become God. It's all about man. It's all about what I want, what you want. And so that's why I believe that humanity today no longer bears the image of God unless they happen to be in Christ. See, it's interesting, too, that it's the same word used of Seth. When Seth was born to Adam and Eve, it says, Adam fathered a son at 130, which I cannot even imagine. But he fathers the son in his own likeness after his image. It's interesting from that point forward, really from the fall forward, that man is always described as being born in the image of man. No longer in the image of God. Seth was not made in the image of God. He was made in the image of Adam. And at this point, Adam has fallen. That means he's got the characteristics of Adam. He shadows his father. He looks like his father. He does like his father. Cain had the same problem, and Cain killed his brother. So you see a change take place because of the fall. But again, what does all this have to do with sanctification? Everything. Because we're talking in sanctification about you and I basically being Christ-like, shadowing Christ on this earth, living like Christ, modeling Christ, taking on the attributes of Christ. See, when God made Adam and Eve, they, they Everything they did brought glory to him because they were made perfectly. They were sinless. But Adam was not an exact replica of God. He wasn't a mini-God. He wasn't kind of God's mini-me. He just shadowed God. He was an image of God in the sense that when you saw the shadow, you knew it came from this. When you see my shadow, you know it's attached to me. The two are not separated. They weren't intended to be separated. But this shadow, this phantom, reflects the divine nature of God. It doesn't reflect my creative capability. It reflects his creative capability. It doesn't reflect on me being significant. It reflects on him being significant. It always points back to him, not me. So as a shadow is cast by an object, man was meant to simulate, not duplicate, God. We we simulate him in the sense that when we walk around this planet as children of God, men of God, we reflect God. Not in an exact representation, but in the way we love others, the way we treat one another. We don't become God, and that's our biggest problem is we want to be God. Why did Eve eat the apple? Because Satan said, if you eat this, you will be like who? God. It was the cause of the fall, wanting to be not an image of God, but be God. You'll be just as wise as God. You'll be just as powerful as God. You can be God. And that's the temptation we all face every day. You be God of your own life. That's not what God intended. So Adam's not a mini version of God. Neither are you. Neither am I. So what do we learn from this? Well, a shadow, as God's shadows, Adam and Eve were meant to reveal his existence. As they walked the planet, they revealed the existence of God. And every human who would have come after that would have been made in the image of who? God. Not Adam, not Eve, but God. But again, the fall screwed that up. As a shadow bears the likeness of a man, so man was meant to bear the image of God. That's the way it was intended. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and then we get to chapter 3. We were to be made imago Dei, the image of God, you and I. Adam and Eve were made that way. But what happened? They disobeyed. They fell. See, they were given this incredible responsibility. And this always blows me away when you go back and you think about what Adam and Eve did. Because God said, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you know, I, I look at that and I remember as a kid, I think, well, what idiots. I mean, they could eat of every tree. They had access to anything they wanted. They could eat to their heart's content and they would never gain weight because they were made perfectly. They could eat anything. And what's the one tree they couldn't keep their hands off of? The one tree he said, don't eat. If you've got kids, you know exactly what this looks like, right? Don't do that. I just told you, don't do that. Don't, uh, stop it. Don't do it again. No, okay, stop. Don't play in the street. You can play in the backyard, you can play in the front yard. Don't play in the street. Where do they go? They go in the street. That's exactly what goes on here. He said, if you eat it, you're gonna die. See, what God's telling him is, I want obedience and I want obeisance. I want obedience, I want respect through through doing what I tell you to do, but I also want you to do it reverently and with awe. See, I don't want my kids to obey me out of duty. I want them to do it because they love me and they they revere me. They even fear me sometimes. That's what God was asking. He wants them to obey, but they chose to do what? They disobey. The, the woman sees the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes. It can make her wise like God, so she ate it. And then she gives it to her husband. This is one of the most subtle condemnations of, of maleness in the Bible. Well, it's not that subtle. Where's Adam when all this is taking place? He's standing right next to her. He's not in his wood shop. He's not busy naming the, the animals. He's standing next to her. She takes the fruit. He's heard every lie from the enemy, and he takes and he eats too. He gave up his role, the silence of Adam. He didn't speak up. As a matter of fact, he was the, one, he was the only one told by God, don't eat of this tree. She hadn't been made yet. He obviously told her because she debated a little bit with the enemy, But they both gave in. They both disobeyed God. They did what they were not supposed to do. And what happens? Well, there's consequences. When you disobey God, there's consequences. I'm I'm working my way through the book of Deuteronomy right now. And, and, man, it's a slog. Because I'm at chapter 28, and it's like cursed, 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 curse after curse after curse. Here's what's going to happen if you disobey me. It isn't going to go well for you. So what do we see here? There's curses, there's there's consequences. They develop a sin nature. Chapter three, verse seven. They never had a sin nature until they disobeyed. Think about that. Adam and Eve were made perfect, sinless, completely righteous, but as soon as they disobeyed God, they developed a sin nature. They felt shame for the first time. No shame. I can't imagine that. What it's like to have no shame, but suddenly they have shame. Then they tried to hide from God. How silly is that? trying to hide from God, but how many times have you not confessed something to to God because you don't want him to know? Think how stupid that is. Well, gosh, I'm not telling him I did that. Well, okay. That's going to work out really well for you. Confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive your sins, or you can try to hide it and he already knows it. And you can just live with the guilt, but they try to hide from God. And then they blame shift. And this is the part that's so funny to me. Oh, it wasn't me, it was the Satan. Satan made me do it. Oh, it wasn't me, it was the woman, and you made her. It's not my fault. Blame shifting. We all do it. And then they get cursed by God. You can go back and see what that looks like. But here's the problem. Not only were they cursed, so were we. Not only did they get disciplined, so have we. We live under the curse. The whole creation lives under the curse. Things are not the way they were supposed to be. And here's the saddest part of the whole story. They get kicked out of the garden. And you've seen paintings of that, of them leaving in shame. But guys, they they didn't just leave a place, they left a presence. They were kicked out of the presence of God. They no longer had access to God. And it says, God says, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That's not a good thing. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He went out of the garden, out of the presence of God, out of communion with God, and lost fellowship with God. That's why man, woman, living on the earth, outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, no longer bear his image because they no longer have access to the source. They're alienated from God. God. It says he drove the man out of the garden. East of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They could no longer go back in and spend time with God. And that's the problem with humanity. They're alienated from God. They're distanced from God. And if you read the book of Genesis and you make your way into the book of Exodus and Leviticus and on through the Old Testament, what you see is man slowly moving further and further away from the garden and from God, both physically and spiritually no longer any access, their access to God is eliminated. So there's no fellowship, there's no friendship and it gets replaced with what? Enmity. Every person walking on this planet outside of Christ is at enmity war with God. They don't bear his image. They bear the image of Adam and their source of eternal life was denied. What's really fascinating about this story is there was a tree in the garden they could eat of it and it was the tree of life. And as long as they ate it, they had eternal life. If you were here when we did Revelation, guess what? That tree shows back up where? In heaven, in the new Jerusalem. And we will eat of the tree of life again. Oh, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the source of eternal life. He is. But we will eat of that tree in the garden of Jerusalem, the garden of heaven for eternity. But they lost it. So they had spiritual and physical separation from God. That's the fate of every man and every woman walking this planet. And here's the saddest part. Their righteousness gets replaced with what? Sin. They started out as saints and they became sinners. What happened to you when you placed your faith in Christ? You went from sinner to what? Saint. See, God reversed the order. They chose to disobey and God punished them. We place our faith in Christ and we become the saints of God as we talked about last week. But we have this problem. Humanity was created righteous and because of sin, they no longer can reflect his holiness. They did and then they lost it because they sinned. And that was the state of the world. That was the state of the world until Jesus Christ showed up. Sin had changed everything. It says when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, Adam sin brought death, so death spread to who? Everyone and everyone has sinned, as we all know. Paul goes on, the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over how many? Many. Everybody. Everyone. Well, he's not done. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for who? Everyone. Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand that Paul's trying to make a point, right? Everyone. Everyone. He's trying to get us to understand that everyone has sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's the status of people living on this planet. All people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. If you're under the power of sin, you are alienated from God. You can no longer reflect the image of God. You are no longer his image bearer. No one is righteous, not even one. No one's truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Again, what's his point? if you don't know, come talk to me. It's obviously what? No one, nobody, not a single one. There's nobody on this planet outside of Christ who reflects the image of God anymore. That's why sanctification is so huge. You have been placed back into a relationship with God because of Jesus Christ and you now can bear his image. As a matter of fact, you are commanded to bear his image. In a world where no one is righteous, in a world where no man is able to bear the image of God except you if you're in Christ. Why? Because everybody else is separated from God. And just to wrap this up, what did their sin do to the world? It left the entire world living in darkness. The world we live in is living in darkness. That's why we shouldn't be surprised what we see happening in the world. Yesterday morning out at the South Campus, I had a young man walk up right before we started and he goes, do you ever hate anybody? I'm like, uh, sure, yeah. Why? What, do you, what do you mean? He goes, man, I just, I just catch myself hating people. I said, well, who do you hate? I said, well, all those people who hate me, who hate Christianity, who hate Christ, who hate the church, who hate our belief system. I find myself hating them. Is it okay to hate them? I was like, mm, Probably not. We're told to love our enemies. Now, you can hate what they believe in. You can hate the source of the lie that they believe, but don't hate them. But see, we live in darkness, and we shouldn't be surprised of all those around us who believe very strange things that are totally against what we believe. But we got to understand they're, they're blind. They're living in the dark. They can't see See, Isaiah predicted that people who walk in darkness are going to see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Who's he talking about? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who came, and John tells us about it. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light. They hate salvation. They hate the gospel. My oldest brother hates the gospel. He does not want to talk about the gospel. Why? He doesn't want to go near it because he doesn't want to have his sins exposed. He's become comfortable with his sin. For those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. That's sanctification. You draw near to the light, and when you draw near to the light, the closer you get to the light, your shadow grows what? More intense. And others can see the relationship you have with him. Rather than hate those people, live like Christ in front of those people. Yes, they'll still hate you and maybe hate you more, just like Jesus told the disciples. Because they hated me, they're going to hate you. But at least be hated for the right reason. Not because you post obnoxious posts, but because you live like Christ. Because you bear his image. You are salt and light. See, Jesus, we're told, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He reflects God perfectly. When he became a man, man incarnate, or God incarnate, took on human flesh, he was the image bearer deluxe, bar none. He did what Adam couldn't do. We're told by John, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, Jesus Christ, who is himself God. He has revealed God to us. When Jesus Christ walked the earth, he revealed God to us. Now guess what? Now it's our turn. We're to walk like Christ. We're to live like Christ. We're to love like Christ. And we're to reveal his image. Jesus was the image icon in the Greek of God. So are you if you're in Christ. Again, that's why we're studying sanctification He bore the image of God. He was God, but I have the spirit of God living in me. You have the spirit of God living in you. Jesus took on human flesh. He became the perfect Imago Dei, but because I have the spirit of God living in me, I can become the Imago Dei that Adam was made to be. But here's the reality. This is the world we live in, guys. Listen, listen to this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So guess what? When you start living like Christ, looking like Christ, emulating Christ, being Christ-like, the world will sometimes hate your ever-living guts. And they will reject you just like they rejected him. But don't stop living as who you are. Don't stop being the image that you've been called to be. See, the light penetrated the darkness... The image bearer, Jesus Christ, became our sin bearer just so that we could become the image bearers of God yet again. We've had that ability restored. And that's why it's so important to go back to Genesis the way God intended it. We were made perfect. We were made whole. We were made sinless, then sin into the world. We lived in darkness for generation after generation after generation. Jesus Christ came back into the darkness, and he exposed us to the light. And you and I who step into the light now bear the image of God again. We are the shadow of God on this earth. Because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's what this is all about. So here's your questions. A shadow can't be cast in the dark, right? It's impossible, gotta have a light source, gotta be close to the light. So if mankind is living in the dark, how in the world could they ever bear the image of God? They can't. So what does that mean? Well, that's the second question. What are some practical ways in which we, as Christians who can bear his image, can do so? How can we be God's shadow in this world providing proof of his existence. Give each other some practical examples of what that would look like so that your lost friends might actually see what God looks like through you. Then finally, read Romans 5, 14 through 17 and discuss how Jesus, the last Adam, became the perfect image bearer. What did he do that Adam failed to do? And by extension, what are we able to do that Adam can no longer do? Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their patience, their interest, I pray that, Father, you would take this topic and you would help us to wrestle with it and understand that, Father, when when we were saved, something significant happened. It's not just that we got eternal life and we get to spend eternity with you in heaven and our sins are forgiven. That's great. That's wonderful. But you left us here. And you left us here for a reason, that we might bear your image in this world where so many people are living in darkness and so many people are alienated from you. May we truly reflect you, shadow you the way we were intended to. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.